Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles again to Psalm 9, to Psalm 9. I, uh, I do apologize that the text is not going to be on the screen this morning, but it is in your Bibles, I promise. And if it's not, you need to get a new Bible. Uh, but you're going to the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of your Bible, and you're looking for Psalm 9, and uh, we're going to read it together in just a moment. I wanted to remind you, we just recently finished our summer survey, if you like, of the children's catechism on Wednesday nights. We didn't get terribly far. The children's catechism has 150 questions we finished in the late 30s. But when we stopped, we were in the middle of discussing the nature of sin and the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and life in the garden before and after the fall. Something that I think Psalm 9 speaks has a lot to say about life after the fall and what our expectations are meant to be as God's people in the midst of that. And so, Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh, with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing and praise your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, and they stumble and perish before your presence. You have, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord, Yahweh, is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then here's the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the Word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. As I said, we have been talking about our first parents and the fall into sin in the catechism class. One of the most interesting things about those early chapters in Genesis is you begin with God creating the world, of course. You have these pronouncements at the end of each creation day. It is good, it is good, it is good. Then man names the animals and then God gives the first, not benediction, blessing, good word, but malediction, bad word. He says it is not good. It is not good, the Lord says, that man should be alone. And up to this day, that resonates 
in all of our souls. You don't have to be a Christian to know that being alone, being truly alone, is a terrifying prospect. To be truly alone in the world. Not just without a husband or wife, but to be without any friends. To be without any help. To be without any advocate. To be truly vulnerable and exposed and weak. If we lived in a world that was by default kind and generous, such a prospect would not be so scary. But we live in a world full of wickedness. And so to be alone, to truly fend for yourself, is a terrifying prospect. It's part of the reason I think we live in a world absolutely dominated by anxiety and depression and hysteria. Because if there is no God and you really are defenseless, then the world is only as just and as fair as you can force it to be by your own self-righteous rage. Which explains a lot of the political situation we find ourselves in. So here's my question to start us off. Why does God want His people singing Psalm 9? Part of the answer is because this psalm tells a better story about the maker of our universe and how He works, especially in relation to His people. This psalm is about a a God who does not abandon His people. Some of you might have a sense of what abandonment feels like. You know what it is to be ignored or discarded or forgotten. Maybe at times you even feel abandoned by God. You've wondered where He is. You've wondered, more commonly perhaps, why things didn't work out the way they were supposed to when you prayed for them. David, God's chosen king and covenant son, wrote this psalm. I have a point there. Could a guy like that, could a guy with that profile and pedigree, I'm the king of Israel, the chosen king of Israel, God used sonship language to talk to me, could a guy like that really know what abandonment feels like? The Psalms tell us yes. He wrote most of them, and a lot of them deal with this very theme. So let's explore this together and see what we're meant to confess and sing here. Psalm 9 is probably, probably the first half of a song together with Psalm 10 being the second half. With apologies, and maybe for some of you with relief, I'm only preaching on Psalm 9 this morning. In fact, in the, uh, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in the Latin Vulgate, Psalm 9 and 10 are actually one psalm. And so after this one, after this psalm, if you are comparing, uh, say, the Bible you've got in your hands with the Latin Vulgate or the Septuagint, don't know if you would ever do that, but if you ever were, you have to make sure you clarify because the numbering is going to be off after this one. Our English translations go with the Hebrew numbering rather than the Greek or Latin numbering. And in the Hebrew numbering, Psalm 9 and 10 are separated. But they both declare very much the same thing. If you go home after the sermon today, after the the service today, and you read Psalm 10, you're going to see it is pretty much the same message. That is, our God does not abandon His people. He hears them. He sees them. He takes action for them. And He wins. Under that banner, this psalm declares that God is worthy. And this takes shape in at least four ways that I want to share with you this morning. He is worthy of our thanksgiving. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our praises. And He's worthy of the victory. Okay, So I'm going to say that again. 
in Psalm 9, what we're going to see is that God is worthy of our thanksgiving, worthy of our trust, worthy of our praises, and worthy of our victory. Let's start with worthy of our thanksgiving. God is worthy of our thanksgiving because, I've already told you, He does not abandon His people. He sees, He hears, He takes action, and He wins. So if you'll go to Psalm 9, the first verse. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Notice, wholehearted praise. David is giving thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. He is doing so by doing something else. That is, recounting, remembering all of God's wonderful deeds. That uh, wonderful deeds there at the end of verse 1. That's one word in Hebrew. It shows up in a few places in the Psalms for, I mean, anything from uh, miracles to daily ordinary blessings to all the glories of Scripture. So, uh, I prayed it a moment ago. You might be familiar with Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Same that's the wonderful, wonderful things, wonderful deeds, same Hebrew word. So David knows the power of knowing history, knowing what God has done. Christians teach history for a very practical reason, because we are forever interested in the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. I'm saying the work of the Holy Spirit through history, the assumption that God's been at work through all of history, is part of why Christians study history. I remember I had a pastor when I was in college. He, he told me, if you want to know God's will for your life, read the Bible. If you want to know God's sovereign plan, read a history book. Because <laughs> that's as much as we know so far. So why is David so thankful here? David is declaring that God is worthy of thanksgiving because apparently this God has a history of delivering His people from their enemies, and even destroying their enemies. Look at verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. David has enemies. That's an assumption of the psalm, right? I mean, I'm not making any huge leap to say David's got enemies. And so do you, Christian. And Jesus told you to love them, which is even more of an assumption that you'll have them. Having enemies is part of the Christian life. Christians should not aspire to make enemies according to the strength of their arrogance. But if you are faithfully living what Jesus has called you to in His Word, in your work, you will begin to discover that you have enemies. In a fallen world, in a sense, that's by design. Or at least by expectation. In our present moment, that reality is getting stronger, not weaker. It's likely that my generation and my daughter's generation will more and more experience what it is to be really hated by the enemies of Christ. More and more, we will have enemies in this world because they hate us after they've thought about it. Okay, They hate us after they've thought about it. Not because we did something one time they didn't like, but because they've meditated on it and determined that hatred is what God-fearing people deserve. That's part of the reason why the modern church stopped singing psalms. Stay with me. Because we became... Really fixated, you might remember in the, in the 90s, with what was called the seeker-sensitive movement. That is, we tailored our church life to the sensitivities of the unbeliever. And if your objective in church life is that, you will very quickly stop singing psalms. Because when unbelievers come in and you start singing about God's enemies, they might just make the conclusion that you're singing about them. 
But David says that he rejoices that God has protected him. Look at verse 3 again. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. In God's presence, God's enemies are destroyed. The Hebrew could literally be translated, you show up and they die. Verses 4 to 6 then. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities rooted out or rooted up. The very memory of them is perished. As you can probably tell, this psalm is in the Psalm 2 tradition. I told you every psalm probably fits into a Psalm 1 box or a Psalm 2 box. This one fits into the Psalm 2 box. The call from God to the nations to kiss the Son, that is to worship Jesus. And these enemies of God have apparently earned the worst kind of punishment. To be defeated is one thing. But to be wiped out and have your legacy cut off so that future generations don't even remember your name. In the ancient world, there is no worse form of judgment. Not just to be defeated, but to be forgotten. And if you notice, I mean, the names of David's enemies, perhaps rightly, don't even get mentioned. I like to think that at the time of writing the psalm, not even David can remember who those clowns were. God means for His victory over evil to be so totalizing and so severe and so comprehensive that we don't even remember the names of all of what happened. I mean, imagine that. That God's victory is so severe that when you look back on some hardship in your life, you're you're searching for details. I know we were hurting. I know we were scared. I know that was hard. What was it that was going on again? I can't quite remember. Because the victory of God over it was so extravagant. That's what you remember. And so God means for His victory over evil to be so totalizing that we don't even remember the name, so to speak. In a way, that's really encouraging, right? I mean, if you don't see it, I'll tell you how. Today, the biggest heartache you're facing, the biggest terror you're facing, the biggest pain you're facing or disappointment, all these things in life, that when they come roaring in, they cause us to ask in our hearts, where is God? And so what if in the course of time, I don't mean by tomorrow morning, but what if in the course of time, God means to make His victory in the midst of your tragedy so totalizing that the thing that so burdens you today, you have trouble remembering the details of it five years from now. I'm not saying you'll forget everything. But what if God's purpose in your suffering cultivates and grows such a glory that you are later left wondering, what was that thing again? I remember I was anxious. I remember I was depressed. I remember I was afraid. What was the reason again? That's the time to raise your hands in thanksgiving. Our God is worthy of thanksgiving. That's what verses 1 and 2 show us. Because He will not abandon you. He sees, He hears, He acts. And he wins. So God is worthy of thanksgiving. That's the first point. Next point, he is worthy of trust. Worthy of trust. More specifically, worthy of trust because he judges in righteousness and is a stronghold, a a safe house for the oppressed. Look at verses 7 and 8. But the Lord, Yahweh, sits enthroned forever. Notice the difference here between the Lord and David's enemies in verse 6. The the cities get uprooted. They get pulled 
over. Their thrones get knocked over and forgotten, but Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Do you remember your psalm too? This God not only judges the nations, but He judges them with righteousness. Rightness. Now, because of where we live, and it could be worse in other places, but because of where we live, we have trouble imagining a system of justice where judges always make the right call. That's one thing you're given by God Himself. A judge who always makes the right call. This is one of our most central confessions of faith, that God judges the world in righteousness. In fact, He has, verse 7, established His throne for justice. I mean establish His throne for justice. So like, one of the whole reasons God has a throne is to set things right. This explains why men created in the image of this God long for righteousness and justice and fairness with every fiber of their being. Even if you are an atheist, And you have no basis for the concept of justice because if you are a Darwinist, then you cannot get mad when the strong crush the weak and when strong nations eat weak nations and when bullies step on the defenseless. You can't get mad at that. That's just survival of the fittest. What are you mad about? But we can't help but demand justice when stuff like that happens so long as that justice doesn't begin with us and our sins. But even the most faithful Darwinist wants the weak and the oppressed to be protected and vindicated. Why? Because he's created in the image of a God who does exactly that. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He repeats it. A stronghold in times of trouble. The Hebrew word there literally means drought or dryness. Times of trouble. This is who our God is. He's the one who is a a stronghold, a fortress, a castle for the oppressed, for the weak, for the unjustly treated. He does not abandon them. So why does God want us to sing stuff like this? God wants us to sing stuff like this because we live in a world drenched with stories of abandonment and injustice and the utter failure of systems and judges and mayors and governors and presidents. And this world is full of evil men who when they get power, they destroy those who cannot defend themselves. And the tears of the oppressed, along with the blood of the aborted, cries out from the ground like the blood of Abel, demanding justice and God hears every word. So arrogant people who mistreat those weaker than them had better listen up because you are not in fact crushing the weak and getting away with it. You are declaring God your enemy. And He will not abandon the needy. He sees them. He hears them. He will act. He will deal with you so fiercely that no one will remember your name when He is through with you. David begins this psalm with thanksgiving. Because he knows that in God's world, when you witness injustice, you either hold on to your gratitude and your thanksgiving and your trust that God is a just judge or you abandon yourself to bitter cynicism. 
You write stories in your head and in conversation of godless, godless, godless despair. You anticipate God's failure in the world. Worship then becomes boring because who wants to worship a failure? Learning about God becomes boring. And usually politics becomes really exciting because you're so desperate for a new king. But our God is worthy of trust because He does not abandon His people. He hears, He sees, He acts, and He wins. And that is why, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, what's His name? For you, O Yahweh, there it is, have not forsaken those who seek you. Don't miss the connection with verse 9. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, and all those who know His name trust in Him because He doesn't forsake them. All those who know the I Am, Yahweh. Because when doubt and despair close in on you, your heart is tempted to say something like, I think maybe God's real name is I was, or I used to be, or maybe if you're lucky I'll be tomorrow, or I never was. But those who know your name, I am, put their trust in you. How much more so, dear saints, for us who know the name of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, who saves us. Right? Yahweh saves. That's that's what Jesus means. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Our God has a name. And that's why, if you'll pardon this sidebar, this excursus, that our God has a name and so we should not be satisfied with what I think is a very common American or at least Western attempt to worship and glorify an unknown God. Here's what I mean. A lot of Christians, Christians who ought to know better, get really excited when a politician or a television personality or a celebrity drops God a mention. Which God? Well, we don't know. (laughs) Some nameless God. But we are so, sometimes I think in Christianity, we're so thirsty for a drop of attention from those in power that we'll happily celebrate the worship of a nameless God. They don't have to mention Jesus. They don't have to praise the God of Abraham. Just so long as they tip the hat to some kind of concept of a higher power, that's good enough. Meanwhile, the God in heaven laughs and tells us with rather discomforting clarity that He awaits those who... Refuse to kiss the sun, to worship the sun. And so we rest in the judgments of our God. We trust our God, and He's worthy of our trust. He sees, He hears, He acts, and He wins. Indeed, He is, that's my next point, worthy of praise. (laughs) The declaration of who God is, this God of justice, who defends the oppressed and the needy, who does not forsake those who seek Him. This good news of a good God does for David what good news of a good God must always do for your heart and mine. It causes him to break out into doxology and praise. So he he proclaims who God is, verse 10, and then says, verse 11, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God is worthy of praise and He means to build a people who praise Him. Notice that in verses 1-10, through David is able to look back upon previous victories, previous glories, previous kindnesses of God, previous, the Lord has heard my prayers, my cries of affliction. 
This is what God means to do. And dear saints, it's what He is always doing for His people. Let me put it to you this way. God means to build an army of men and women who have learned how to weaponize their testimonies. He means to build an army of testimony-laden people. People who have stories they can tell of God's faithfulness. Of how the walls were closing in and they were rescued. Of how evil men were winning and then they weren't. Of how it seemed like all the evil men were getting away and the blood avenger of heaven caught up with his quarry. When God's people seemed most abandoned and forgotten, it was then that the nations were reminded, verse 12, that He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God is worthy of praise because He has committed to His people this reality that He will never abandon them. He sees, He hears, He acts, and He wins. And it is in this very confidence that David can pray. David knows what kind of God he has. So that's what leads him to pray. Verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Notice some things here. David asked God to see something. Did you, did you catch that? O oh Lord, see my affliction. Verse 13. See my pain. See my struggle. And he asked God to lift him up from the gates of death so that he can find himself at a different set of gates. Verse 14. The gates of the daughter of Zion. So that I can keep telling your testimonies of rescue. So that I can keep on rejoicing in your salvation. David is saying, get me out of hell so that I can come to church. Get me out of hell so that I can come to church. Bring me out of the pit so that I can return to God's people and once more give them stories of your glorious faithfulness. And we gather to worship because our God is worthy of all praise, for He does not abandon us. He sees us, He hears us, He acts, and He wins. The rest of the psalm is about the victory of God, which is my last point. God is worthy of the victory, and He will accomplish it. Look at verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known, and He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And then you've got this bit to the side. Higayon Selah. Alright? So what's that about? Well, If you go back up to the top of the psalm, you see this inscription, To the choir master, according to Muth Laban. What is that? We have no idea. (laughs) Just as far as mysteries in the scriptures go, this is one of them. Nobody knows what this means, as far as I can tell. And so it is with these inscriptions that are in some of the psalms. uh, Selah and this one, uh, Haggaiom. As the best we've got, it's probably one of two things. One of them is pause and reflect here. The other possibility is, and I kind of like this idea, almost think of it as like the direction of the melody is about to change because the direction of the psalm is about to change. Most likely, that these are, uh, these are indicators to the musicians and to the singers. 
Uh, and so probably has something to do with pausing to reflect or taking a moment or, or preparing to finish the last bit with gusto. So, I mean, those are two different things, but it's, it's probably one of, one of those things. And so, verse 7 gave us a God high and exalted on His throne. Verse 15 puts the pagan nations in the opposite situation. Right? God is high and exalted on His throne. Where are these nations in verse 15? Sunk into the pit that they've made. Right, you see the contrast. Caught in the net that they've hid. This is, I think, God's favorite way of dealing with His enemies. Certainly in the Psalms. A psalm-singing people will often be singing about how evil men get caught in their own traps. They get burned by fires that they start. The best Old Testament example of this is probably Haman in the book of Esther, right? He builds the gallows to hang courageous and godly Mordecai. Haman ends up being the guy hanged from the gallows himself. It's probably the best example of this. The New Testament example, do I even have to tell you? (laughs) That all of my enemies around me have constructed a cross to crucify me. And they are, as it were, caught in their own schemes. And that actually then becomes the deliverance of God. The point is that God is not mocked. That's what this psalm calls calls you to sing. and, and, And what it confronts you with is the fact that sin itself is very frequently the snare that brings you down. Now, it doesn't, sin doesn't sort of appear or present like that. If it did, we would never sin, beloved. Sin appears and presents as the thing you want and need that's going to make you happy. But the sins that are your favorite indulgence that you believe no one sees, God sees, God hears, God acts. And it is His way that the secret plans that we make to protect our sins are the very things that end up destroying us. Some of you parents have older children who are far from the Lord. In some cases, you're watching them get burned by fires that they started. This is ordinary in God's world. Sometimes the fire has to burn all the way to the bone, so to speak, before it wakes them up. And they come home like a prodigal son. Because, verse 16, this is how God actually makes Himself known. How He makes Himself known. Known. Did you catch that? The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed that judgment of foot getting caught in the net and so on. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. When all the consequences of your stupid, selfish, evil decisions come crashing down on your own head, that is nothing short of the megaphone of heaven demanding that you make a full retreat from the wicked stupidity that's destroying you. It is in those moments that you're called to remember something. Remember who God is. Remember what He has said. Look at verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. Forgetting God is one of the greatest sins a nation can commit. Forgetting God is one of the greatest sins that a nation can commit. And a lot of times when we use the language of forgetfulness, and I am just as guilty of this as anyone, I confess to you. When we use the language of forgetfulness, what we are saying is absence of responsibility. It's actually not what God's Word says about forgetfulness, right? 
So just by way of example, if God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we forget, that's not a, oh, I forgot, so I'm not at fault. If the command is to remember, and we forget, in that instance, the forgetting is sinful. And forgetting God is one of the greatest sins a nation can commit. In America, in many places, we've actually made it our public policy. That our nation trains our children in God-forgetfulness, where they can't have any mention of Him in government places because our leaders are committed to forgetting God. And the real horror of it is that some Christians will even defend it. We can't talk about Jesus here because something, something, separation of church and state. That's utter nonsense. Nations that forget God have only one direction, and it's death. In the meanwhile, nations that forget God... <laughs> always have a justice problem. That's what the psalm's all about, right? The justice of God. Nations that forget God always have a justice problem. That's why David says that, uh, that God-forgetting nations will perish. And that means, verse 18, the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor will not perish forever. Some of you really just need to hear that verse this morning. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Because you're angry at God, because somewhere along the way your hope perished. Some kind of hope that you had is not doing so hot today. Things did not go how you wanted. You were in need, and you didn't get heard. You prayed and nothing happened. You cried out and it seemed to bounce off the ceiling. And you read something like verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and you kind of want to rage a little because that's not your story. You're thinking, but what about that? Because you're bearing disappointment with God, and I'm guessing it's really hard for you to worship or to be thankful, verses 1 and 2. Hard for you to praise. Look at verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor will not perish forever. Now, wait a minute. Now, work this out for a second. If the needy shall not always be forgotten, it means aren't they getting forgotten right now? If the hope of the poor will not always perish forever, does it seem to be dying now? Wait, I thought, go back, I thought the Lord was their stronghold. What's going on? He is. So why are they being forgotten? Okay, they might not perish forever, but why are they perishing now? And how long is that going to go for? How long, oh Lord? Now you're finally singing like a psalmist. God's people are not a people who assume everything goes their way. And if we sing songs that make us think that, we ought to stop. Christians are a people who need to be trained by their singing as much as anything else to rest in God when things don't go their way and to wait patiently for the Lord, but not because the calling is upon us to live in a state of constant defeat, but because our God is not mocked. He's not overpowered. He's not losing control. He does not forget. And He is worthy of the victory because He sees he hears, He acts, and dear saints, He will win. The needy will not always be forgotten. They have a God who remembers everything. The poor will not always perish because they have a God who knows the way out of the grave. 
And make sure you hear that well. Because I, I think, and maybe it's just me, I'll, I'll let you take ownership of this as you want, but I, I think that unfortunately we are almost trained to read passages uh, like this and exclude ourselves from them. And what I mean is, we read something like, God is the stronghold for the needy, they will not be forgotten, the poor will not always perish. Okay, and we say, that's really lovely. It's, it's probably for someone less well-off than me. We're Americans, we're rich, so those promises are not for us. Uh, now, it is, it is a reality that those promises are for the poor. And for a lot of us, for, for many Americans in our present moment, that's not us. However, don't forget, this language of being poor and needy was written by a king. <laughs> a king who was singing about a history of victory for God's people in a world that hated them. If you don't think verse 18 applies to the troubles that burden you when your heart is as dry as an Arizona desert, you are exempting yourself from the hope that God means to give you. God did not give you the blessing of a flushing toilet so that you could conclude His promises don't mean anything for you. The text is for the needy and for the oppressed. Take that seriously. It means that God will deal with oppressors in a most terrifying way. But don't let guilt and manipulation rob you of God's promises. God answers the cries of His people. He doesn't abandon them. He sees, He hears, He acts, and He wins. Oh, Pastor Brian, I know what you mean. You mean He'll win in the ultimate sense. You mean... We're just called to a bunch of losing here. And then one day when we get to heaven, that's when God will will win. Christianity is about losing all our battles here on earth, but eventually winning in heaven. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what David is saying. When David echoes Psalm 2 at the end of Psalm 9, he says, verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. That's present tense. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. They are but men. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word there for men is not Adam, as you might think. Like, right? Adam means men. That's where, where we get the word Adam. It's, it's the word used to, to really just enforce the ordinariness, the, the you are dust aspect of things. They are, they are but men. David's asking God to do this now. He has reason to think that God will. Because verses 3 through 6, hello, he has testimonies of God doing just that. I am not saying punt it all to heaven. I am saying that a people who sing the Psalms will never be a people who say, well, I guess that's just the way that it is and we have to put up with it. They are a people who sing. There's a God of justice on the throne and He's put all the wicked, God-defying rebels on notice and all getting away with it is temporary. Rather than saying, I guess that's the way it is, psalm-singing Christians will be the ones who say it will not always be this way. It will not always be this way. The psalm closes by saying, Put them in fear, O Lord. Cause them to fear you. As I wrap this up. Fear of God, don't be put off too much by that. Fear of God just means taking God seriously. You're dealing with the Almighty. 
And this should be our prayer for our nation and our friends and our neighbors. It should also be our prayer for ourselves. Because the reason our nation doesn't fear God is because the church has stopped. We have confused, I think, a God who forgives sin by blood with a God who ignores sin with shrugged shoulders. And that is why our churches have stopped singing psalms. Because the psalms confront us with a God who cares deeply about His Word, deeply about His justice, deeply about His judgments and His glory, which all brings us to our knees. Indeed, Paul himself quotes Psalm 9 when he preaches at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And all of this He has given assurance to all, so, sorry, of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So there's a quote of Psalm 9, verse 8, kind of hidden, tucked away in there. Psalm 9, verse 8, He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And, and Paul says, He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. There it is. But He adds to it. By a man whom He's appointed. And then He gave assurance of it by raising Him from the dead. Which means that this judge who reigns over all the nations is none other than the Son of Psalm 2 and the Christ of the New Covenant. Jesus. Remember what happened when the Son was resurrected. Psalm 2. The Father said to Him, Today I have begotten you from the dead. Ask and I will give you the nations and you will judge them as with a rod of iron. And today Jesus Christ sits on His throne in judgment over the nations. And we His people sing, The needy will not be forsaken and the hope of the poor will not die and the cry of the lonely will not go unheard and the oppressed will be given a stronghold. They will. They will. Because our God who is worthy of all thanksgiving, worthy of all trust, worthy of all praise, and worthy of all victory does not abandon them. He sees, He hears, He acts, and He wins. And if unbelief has taken root in your heart such that you cannot sing those promises, then what is before you today is a need to confess your sin. Confess your unbelief and the lies that you tell yourself about God and about His Word and about His promises. Cry out to God with verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Lift me up from these gates of death. Turn me into one who recounts your praises, who retells your stories in the congregation of Zion as I rejoice in your salvation. And God, your Father, the victor, will answer you in your weakness and need by the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ, with these words, your sins are forgiven. In the name of Jesus, amen.